All that is gold does not glitter. Sorry, Smash Mouth. Tolkien was right. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson host of the Magnus Podcast and executive director of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. You might recognize me from the 30 seconds of meaningless banter prior to every great lecture on this podcast that you are accustomed to fast-forwarding through regularly to get to the good stuff. But I ask, please don't fast-forward right now because I've got a really important announcement and a plea for you, really. We're in the midst of the great campaign It's giving season, it's Christmas season, and we're trying to raise $50,000. And with that $50,000, we're going to be able to continue offering courses in the Magnus Fellowship that will keep up with the demand. And the demand, I need to assure you, is great. We have about five, more than 500 fellows right now signed up to take courses. And fellows themselves in classes are doing a great job of giving monthly. That, That helps us so much. But we need to cover a little bit of a gap. And so we're about halfway there. At the time of me recording this, we've raised about 25000 uh, due to some extreme generosity, and we need some some more. So if you can help us at magnusinstitute.org slash give, donate to the great campaign. If you need an incentive besides that, uh, 25 bucks a month. And you get access to an ever-growing vault of amazing content, about 250 hours of full courses and discussions behind that paywall right now. It's yours if you give us 25 bucks a month, or frankly, if you just ask for it, it's also yours. So uh, give us money. We really need it, and we will steward it well. I'm a, a benefactor myself, if you must know, and I can tell you that it is it is a mission worth supporting. So magnusinstitute.org slash give. Gifts great or small are appreciated. Every gift is great to us. And I can promise you there's no better use of your hard-earned money than the mission of liberating the liberal arts and ransoming the captives of a broken college system. And on behalf of our little staff, four staff and growing, hopefully with your help, I want to thank you because uh, you're putting food on the table for beautiful people and providing great education for those who are most thirsty for it. Okay, magnusinstitute.org slash give. Thank you in advance. Today's podcast, you're gonna you're in for a treat. It's Dr. Helen Free on a class, uh, Tolkien, Freedom and Friendship in Lord of the Rings. And we get great feedback from a lot of the classes we do. I don't know if I've ever had so much unsolicited great feedback than from this class. We get students reaching back out to us and saying, wow, Helen Free needs to teach more. In this lecture, you'll see why she touches on uh, Tolkien themes uh, from the power of language to friendship to love. Excellent stuff here. Um, please enjoy. Please uh, give at magnusinstitute.org slash give. Help us meet our goal of $50,000 for the great campaign. Thanks so much. Enjoy the lecture. So uh, Aragorn, this is one of your questions that you, I wanted you to think about is Strider. Um, I think it's really funny that Tolkien in his initial, uh, his initial notes wanted to make Strider a hobbit whose name 
was Trotter. Uh, that's what that's what initially what he wanted Strider to be was a hobbit whose name was uh, was Trotter. How would it have radically diff- made it different if we were calling him Trotter through the whole of the book as opposed to Strider? Yeah, Anne. <laughs> I know. This is what I thought. Strider says to me, long strides, confident steps. I know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Trotter sounds like little tiny steps. And I'm looking around and I'm taking small steps because I might need to turn suddenly because I don't know where I'm going. That's yeah. Right. yeah, exactly. Yeah, the image of trot, you know, immediately makes you think of something who's, who's bouncing, um, a little thing that's bouncing in a more humorous, a humorous way. Or that uncomfortable feeling you get, you're riding on a horse and you kind of can't wait to get off because it hurts the backside. Um, but it's, it's, that, it's a jolting sense, whereas striding absolutely is long, confident, uh, confident uh, way of walking. Um, again, Tolkien as a philologist, he really believed in the power of language and in the power of words. Um, he, he spent many hours picking out the right word for things because um, he believed in a, a deep sense that what something is called is what it is. This connection uh, in in linguistics between being and and naming, um, and so it's I think a very good thing that he changed Aragorn to uh, to Strider because certainly Aragorn is a figure in no way matches that uh, that nickname that nickname of of Trotter. And I'll talk a little bit later as we get to various things, uh, some of the etymology of the naming that he does. Uh, but even here, I'll tell you about Aragorn because uh, Tolkien, while he he knew uh, a dozen different languages, both living and dead, one of the ones that he was a master of was Anglo-Saxon. And so the majority of his names actually come from Anglo-Saxon, uh, which I don't know if anyone here is. Uh, studied Old English or Anglo-Saxon at all, but it's a really fascinating language to to listen to because if you read it, you har- you will hardly recognize a word, but if you actually hear it uh, spoken um, on recordings or Old English professors, you suddenly pick up words that even now are familiar. You say, oh, that, that is familiar. I recognize that. I recognize that. Um, so the word Aragorn is, comes from two Anglo-Saxon words. The first is the prefix, which is R, A, the long, a long mark over the A, uh, A-R. And I think this is, I just think it's fascinating, but this is sort of nerdy aspects of me. Um, it means messenger. It means messenger or servant, or apostle, or angel. Um, Any of those prefixes are used in Anglo-Saxon for one of those. So it can be messenger, servant, apostle, or angel. But the Gorn part, Aragorn, has to do with war. G-O-R is also interused with G-A-R, long A's, long O's. And this has to do with a spear, a spear that's used in battle. Um, so if you put his, uh, if you put his name together, Aragorn, then essentially it's a, it's, it's a servant of the spear, or you have this idea of a, uh, of an apostle of, of war in a way. So you've got this image of a man that's very warlike in his very name. It has, uh, it has warlike connotations that are also interlinked, interestingly, obviously with 
uh, with Christianity, but to have this idea of messenger or, or angel. So that's just a little side note, which I just think is interesting. So any questions on that before we talk about appearances versus reality? All that is gold does not glitter. Okay, let's talk about this. This is over on page 182. When we have this, uh, the poem that I don't skip <laughs> about Aragorn, um, this beautiful poem where it says, uh, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. We have this discussion already about uh, appearances versus reality. And Sam initially had mistrusted him because he looked so scruffy and, um, you know, not like someone you really want to invite into your, into your pub room after a long night. Uh, this is over on 183, in which he says, well, my looks are against me, is what he says. Um, and that he hoped that they would have trusted him without any proofs. But he says, a hunted man sometimes wearies of distrust and longs for, here's our beautiful word, uh, friendship, longs for friendship. But there, I believe my looks are against me. And Pippin laughs. Uh, handsome is as handsome does, as we say in the Shire. But it says, Sam was not daunted. And he still eyed Strider dubiously. And he says, how do, you, how do we know you are the Strider that Gandalf speaks about? You never mentioned Gandalf. You might have done in the real Strider and took his clothes. What have you to say to that? Um, and of course, Strider says, well, if that happened, then I'm going to kill you now and take, and take the ring. Uh, but he says, I am the real, the real Strider. Um, so we've got a question here, both of appearances versus reality that comes in. And this is an important distinction to make because obviously too often, what is it that we're taken in by, but we're taken in by the appearance of goodness or the appearance of, uh, of virtue. And we assume that because something looks good, therefore it must be good. And if something looks you know, unkempt and rough and rugged um, and ugly, well, then therefore it must, it must be ugly. Um, and so we need to be real careful about associating the being of something with simply its, its appearance, its appearance in, in, in its exteriors. Um, and the first challenge we have to that is actually, of course, with the hobbits themselves. This will be uh, Sauron's mistake uh, himself, is that he believes that the hobbits, because they are so powerless in appearance, must therefore be powerless. They are, and they're harmless. Um, but that's a fundamental mistake that Sauron himself, that Sauron himself makes. Um, and so we have this again come up with Strider, and we'll have it again come up really throughout the whole book um, that you cannot judge uh, the appearance um, versus the reality. But we're already told here. Well, how do we judge reality? And it's told us in this very simple cliche handsome is as handsome does as we say in the shire um so what will enable us to tell what reality is if we can't trust our own eyes behavior mm -hmm. yeah by what standard can we judge behavior by what standard do you all judge behavior uh, virtue by by their fruits you will know them mm -hmm. okay good so, if it's virtuous good yeah, so in that sense, we're judging people by their behavior. Um, what do they what do they say versus what they do? Um, a great uh, uh, textual exercise to make in literature classes is what's called the character analysis. 
Um, so maybe all of you have done character analysis papers. Um, but the questions you ask are, what does a character say? What does a character do? Um, what do other characters say and do about that person? Um, and so that's how you begin to judge a person is, again, through their actions and the effects of their actions and the motivations of, of their actions. And so here in the heart of what Pippin says, this lighthearted thing, handsome is as handsome does, as we say in the Shire, is itself the, the secret, it's not really big a secret, to judging a person's character. It absolutely can't be on the basis of appearances or looks. Um, it has to be on what do they do and does it correspond in a holistic way with uh, with their person, with what they say and what they do, is it consistent? Uh, is it consistent across the board? Um, or what are we going to find this new character of Aragorn? But a very confident and a very virtuous, uh, virtuous man. Um, and this is a character we'll come back to because we're slowly introduced to Aragorn. Uh, we're not told everything about him. Um, we don't see him in his in his fullness for a little while. So in this sense, we're traveling with this stranger in a way that's similar to, to the hobbits. Uh, remember, Sam is, uh, is still pretty cautious about Aragorn all the way up until, um, up until Weathertop. I think it's the only time he actually begins to finally warm up to him. We're given hints of who he is. We're given hints of his, uh, of his kingship. But we're not told the, the full reality. So in some sense, we, we come to respect this man. I don't want to say fall in love with him. It's like too strong of a statement. We come to really admire this man, see what he does on these initial, these initial parts, of, initial parts of, of the quest. This element of, the, uh, of appearances being deceiving is that if you think about the characters who we've already met, all of them follow the same pattern um, is Gandalf what he appears to the hobbits he is not no Gandalf is so much more than he appears um, are the hobbits more than what they appear uh, these kind of bumbling goofy uh, soft characters no they're a lot more than they appear um, the ring is beautiful it's attractive it's perfect um, it's absolutely perfect but is it what it appears? Not at all. It's evil. It's incredibly evil. Um, in some sense, you can say the, the, the ring is one of the most beautiful objects that we've encountered so far. And yet it is, uh, it is the most evil of, of objects. Um, so again, it seems like a basic point. Don't be deceived by appearances. Um, but it's, it's a terribly significant spiritual reality that's being raised through the through the story and through the the uh, progression progression of the story given we know how powerful aragorn is then in looking at him as a character what we really see with him is uh is restraint uh this is a man who has learned to to restrain the power that he has uh, and we see this even on 183 when he says, well, if he wasn't the real Strider, um, and let's look at that passage for just a minute. He says, you are a stout fellow, answers Strider, but I am afraid my only answer to you, Sam Ganji, is this. If I had killed the real Strider, I could kill you. And I should have killed you already without so much talk. 
if I was after the ring, and again, so he announces, he already knows that it's here. If I was after the ring, I could have it now. Uh, and again, he sort of reveals some element of his power just by standing up. And he says, but I am the real Strider, fortunately, he said, looking down at them with his face softened by a sudden smile. I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and if by life or death I can save you, I will. So we have a man who's, who's very restrained that's here. And we'll talk more about, again, Peter Jackson's presentation versus, uh, versus the real presentation. Um, but one of the first things to note already is just this question of, of manhood uh, and virtuous masculinity, because Jackson often portrays Aragorn from the very beginning as being uncertain, um, more like the Trotter figure and not the Strider figure. Um, but from the very beginning, Aragorn knows who he is, knows what he refuses, which is the power of the ring, uh, and knows that he wants to use his power to help those who are who are weaker than, than he is. So there's never any sense of, oh, I don't know who I am. I don't know if I want to take my power. I don't know if I want to be the future king. Uh, that's sort of Jackson's um, modern man concerns of being. Uh, but Tolkien has uh, has no shame in having a man say, I, I know my vocation and I am going to, to fulfill it. Um, so again, just a difference in presentation regarding regarding masculinity that that's here. So, uh, okay, let's talk, since this whole class is about friendship, let's talk about friendship again. Aragorn says over here on 183 that uh, he longs for friendship. He would have liked them to have uh, seen him as a friend before he had to uh, show the, the letter from Gandalf. But note what Frodo says at the bottom of this page. He says, I believed that you were a friend before the letter came, he said, or at least I wished to. You have frightened me several times tonight, but never in the way that servants of the enemy would, or so I imagine. I think one of his spies would, well, seem fairer and feel fouler, if you understand. So again, the image of, of uh, don't be deceived by how something how something appears. Um, so suddenly we have, again, this introduction of, of friendship that's here. Do we see any change in the presentation of friendship as this story has progressed? So we're now 140 pages into it. So do we see any change at all in the nature of friendship in, uh, in what is happening with these folks? Or is it development? The change is alteration. Development is growth. Maturity. It kind of seems like friendship is becoming more serious. It's not just about enjoying each other's company. It's about standing by somebody. Good. Yeah, loyalty and trust and the defense of the other for really for their sake. Again, not for the sake of uh, of the mission. Okay, good. Um, good. Well, I bring it up because there isn't really a change. It's not a change that happens in friendship. Uh, the friendship between these people uh, exists now in Brie as it did in the Shire, but what has changed is the seriousness of uh, of the world around them. So the four hobbits, when they set off, they they sensed some of the evil that they would have to face, but they had not yet really faced it. Um, but now, by the time they get to Brie, they have uh, encountered the Black Riders from a distance. 
Um, they've directly encountered Old Man Willow. They've directly encountered the uh, the Barrow Whites. And so their knowledge of evil has expanded in a way that it didn't exist at the start of at the start of uh, of the story. And so in that sense, because they continue to be friends with each other, showing that trust and loyalty and uh, willingness to self-sacrifice, then in some sense, it's proving the authenticity and highness of that friendship. Because obviously, if your friendship is not strong or is based on things that are passing, then with the test of, of difficulty, uh, friendship can also can often fall away, um, which all suggests then the change in friendship, uh, the change in relationship status. Um, but what we absolutely see in regards to friendship is the deepening of the friendship that occurs, the strengthening of the bond in the face of uh, of real external adversity that happens. Um, so it's the whole idea of you know the testing of fire um, that uh, that is occurring that's here. The development of friendship is really this this road towards perfection, towards maturity and perfection um, that that all of us uh, that all of us ought to be on. And in this sense, friendship, is being perfected throughout uh, throughout the story. Um, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful essay called The Four Loves. Has anyone read that? Lewis's Four Loves. Again, it's sort of something else to add on to your, to your reading list. It's a short, well, maybe 30-page booklet. Um, maybe I remember it being shorter than it actually is. But um, in that booklet, he classifies, in English, we really just have one word for love, which is love. But in Greek, there are four different words for love, which are different levels of love. So there's one which is called uh, uh, storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, storge. Uh, the next level of love is called uh, philia, P-H-I-L-I-A. The third level of love is eros. And the fourth level of love is agape, which is A-G-A-P-E. And storge is what he calls uh, natural love. So uh, I love my dog. If I, if I was speaking Greek, I'd say I storge my, my dog. Um, so that's a natural love. Um, so you could say things like um, I love chocolate. But obviously, I'm not loving chocolate in a complete, total, self-sacrificial sort of way. I'm loving chocolate in a natural way. Um, so that's that's storge, this natural love relationship. The next one, philia, is the love of friendship. Um, and in Greek understanding, that was man-to-man friendship or woman-to-woman friendship, um, not sexual, but just friendship of those of the same sex. Eros is the romantic sexual love that exists between a man and a woman. Uh, and Philia can't exist between men and women in Lewis's essay because it always moves into, into eros, erotic. But agape is the highest love that surpasses all three of the other loves, and it is the complete, total, self-sacrificial love that we have to give. And that's the love of Christ on the cross is, is the agapic love, a complete, total, self-sacrificial love. 
Um, I don't know if this, this is true because yeah, I'm not a I'm not a, a Greek scholar, but I love Archbishop Fulton Sheen, and I remember him explaining that scene after Christ's resurrection when Christ asks Peter three times, "Peter, do you love me?" The first two times he asks Peter, uh, "Do you love me?" in an agapic way, complete, total, self-sacrificing love. He asks that twice to Peter. Peter, do you love me in this complete, total, self-sacrificing love? And Peter responds. Lord, you know that I love you, but the love is a filial love. So the, the writer uses a filial term for the love. And then finally, Christ says, Peter, do you love me in a filial way? So he Christ changes that third question from agape, agape to philia. And that's what makes Peter so sad is that he doesn't love Christ yet in a complete, total and self-sacrificial, self-sacrificial way. Um, well, I'll bring up these four loves that Lewis talks about because in Tolkien's work, in many ways, every friendship in the work, every natural friendship or brotherly friendship uh, undergoes a type of purgation such that everyone by the end is moves into an agopic type of relationship, not just one person in a Christ-like way for all of us, but each individual character will show agapic love for all others. And so it's this sort of amazing movement or development that Tolkien does regarding friendship in which the friendships are absolutely purified uh, to that, uh, to that level of, um, of agape. So again, every major character and including the, the women as well um, must have those loves purified um, to, to reach that level of, of agape. And in many ways, we begin already here with what is, uh, with what's going on. Okay. Can we get on to knife in the dark? All right, let's do it. Um, the danger level absolutely is increasing. The whole, uh, action of the book has suddenly increased, um, really from Barrow White's on, you feel the pace and the intensity and the presence of evil, uh, in increasing. Um, it's kind of this building terror of the Black writers, particularly that Tolkien does. He's, he's such a master, I think, of, of building up suspense in that we never actually have seen fully the Black writers until we see them on Weathertop. Um, but all our other senses are experiencing them. And it's really, uh, it's really scary. Uh, and you know, in some sense, that is going to be a foreshadowed and inevitable meeting on Weathertop, um, but you don't quite know how it's going to, um, how it's going to turn out. Um, but let's, let's jump ahead to a long song that occurs when they're sitting around the campfire, just waiting to be attacked. <laughs> they decide to uh, talk about Baron and Luthien. Um, in some sense, it's kind of a strange insertion because the intensity of where they are and what you know is going to happen is there. And, um, and again, they've built this fire to try to, I guess, be prepared. But they decide to ask him to sing a, a song. He says, uh, 203. Of course, it's Sam. Sam is the one who always wants to hear poetry, always wants to hear stories. Sam very much is this, is his deep lover of, of poetry. Uh, but he says, tell us some other tale of the old days. Because um, he began to tell a tale that, that he said, no, we're not going to talk about that right now. This is a tale about the elves before the fading time. 
Sam says, I would dearly like to hear more about the elves. The dark seems to press round so close. And what does Strider do? But he begins to um, to chant and to sing a long, uh, sing a long song. So what is the point? What is the point suddenly of interjecting this uh, connection to the Silmarillion, which is the story of Baron and Luthien? Um, and again, the reader of the Lord of the Rings is not expected to know the full tale of Baron and Luthien, though if you do know it, it makes it helpful. Um, but even from what is sung here, what do you think the point is of, of inserting this, this tale right before we have our direct encounter with, uh, with some seriously evil guys, men? Maybe to talk about love. Mm-hmm. To fortify them with the talk of love. And then I'm reminded a little bit of when we're afraid, maybe, of the future, we might read the book, the, a book about saints. We might leave, read the lives of the saints. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So the image of love that's given right here. It also, we've seen many times this evening in the conversation about how these moments put some perspective on it. Mm -hmm. as if to prepare and to keep us from that despair even, right? But to to keep a perspective that, you know, all the evil in the world is not Sauron, right? There are the trees, there's the old forest and things like this, right? There, There's a bigger picture that they don't see and it broadens the world a little bit. Okay, good. Also, love is stronger than evil. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This whole story of Baron and Luthien. And remember that these are the names that Tolkien, his wife predeceased him. And these are the names that Tolkien chose to have on his own tombstone, Baron and Luthien. Um, And this story, uh, which is one of the central stories of the Silmarillion, is really the supreme story of hope that's within the Silmarillion. Uh, It's a story of love. It's a love story. Um, that is uh, full and complete and filled with both life and also of, uh, of death. Um, Baron is a mortal and Luthien is an elven princess. Uh, and Baron uh, wins the hand of Luthien figuratively by literally sacrificing his own to try to seize one of these precious gems, the, the Silmaril, back from the, the crown of uh, Melkor, the evil Valar that, that corrupted the whole world at its, at its foundation. He in turn actually dies, uh, Baron dies, and Luthien is so sad. She's so sad that she goes and she sings sort of the saddest song before the, the god of death, Mandos, uh, asking for Baron to be returned to the world. But that's not the way the world works. And they say, well, we can't do that. The only way we can do that is if Iluvatar himself changes things. And so the agreement that's made is that Luthien has to sacrifice her immortality in order for Baron to be brought back to, to life, but it'll be mortal life. And what she's told is that we can't guarantee that you'll have a happy life with him, but you you also will die with him. And she's willing to sacrifice this immortal elvish life for just a short, short time with this mortal man that she loves. And, and that's what happens. And then eventually they both, they both will die and they both do die. Um, but it's a, it's a story that in many ways most reveals 
what trust in a providential God looks like, because in the Elvish mythology, they say that death is a gift of a Lubitar to men. And so elves see death as an actual gift, but they don't know how it's a gift because they don't experience natural death. They just experience violent death. Um, and so Luthien in many ways has to trust in this promise that death is a gift to, to mortal men when she herself chooses to, to live a mortal life. So it's both a love story, but it's also a very heroic story in which she is willing to, to sacrifice everything, um, not exclusively out of love for Baron, but also out of trust uh, in Iluvatar's creation of death for, uh, for mortals. So in this sense, you could say both these characters, man and woman, Baron and Luthien, they expend themselves completely. It's a total agopic type of love um, in, in battling evil and their successful cutting of a Silmaril from, uh, from Melkor, so reclaiming the Silmaril from the, uh, from the very crown of, of Morgoth. So that's kind of the background of what this is. But it comes back to this question of, you know, why this story? Why this here and now? I really like that Anne mentioned about reading stories of, Stories of the saints. Uh, it's something that obviously Catholics would be familiar with. Protestants may not. Uh, but why do Catholics turn to the the communion of the saints? Um, but what is it about the power of the communion of saints and what what Saint Paul calls the great cloud of witnesses that supposedly helps us in this life? When you're just saying that, it reminds me of a, a prayer attributed to Saint Augustine. Um, and it goes something along the lines of when the road is dark ahead and dreary and the load on our shoulders chafes us um, and there's no music in our lives. Turn our hearts, tune our hearts to where there's brave music and give us a sense of comradeship with the saints of old. Um, so just you're speaking of that and Anne's point too, uh, makes me think of that. And then also too, thinking in terms of this theme of friendship, given that I was kind of struck when he said at the very outset of it that, uh, it's a fair tale, though it is sad, as are all the tales of Middle Earth, and yet it may lift up your hearts. So, something of that, that that paradox, I guess, is woven together in the examples of the saints. They can both be, uh, yeah, the sorrow that's there, and yet uh, a joy beyond it. Um, and I guess finding solace in, again, that comradeship with them. Good. That's something that strikes me, I guess, in what you were saying. Yeah, no, no, very good, very good point, Ben. Yeah, this whole understanding of the cloud of witnesses is this image of, of those men and women who have gone before us um, and are there to, to, to strengthen us and embolden us by their very witness to their lives and their sacrifice to their lives uh, for, uh, for Christ. That in that sense, that these aren't just figures that are off in heaven and uh, just you know, dolls in a museum, but they're still active and their witness does good. And it, it can literally strengthen you and embolden you still in this life to yourself. You be virtuous and be, be heroic in, in what you're doing. And what do we see this story doing for Frodo just a few pages later? But it's that he calls upon the name of, uh, of Luthien in his, in his uh, trying to overcome the, the ring rays. Um, so in that sense, he, this story itself comes back to his mind and he calls upon the, that cloud of witnesses to come to his aid 
in this desperate moment of uh, of direct physical, but it's always physical and spiritual. The ring is that dual that, that dual nature of, of attack that uh, that occurs to him. Um, yeah, so in many ways, and, and and just keep note of this, you often will find before a particularly uh, difficult moment, the insertion of this type of a story, this type of a reminder. So both to the characters, but also to the reader is this reminder that there are things that are greater than ourselves and greater than the story at hand. Um, and there are witnesses who have done uh, great things from whom we can take inspiration. Um, so just note that pattern that exists in, in this story. Um, and it, it already has existed even prior to this Baron Luthien, um, Baron Luthien uh, passage. Uh, but here come the, the ring race. So let's look at page 207. And this is the bottom of page 207. And again, there is this, this palpable feeling of fear that the ring race can, uh, can engender. And the people are feeling afraid. And Frodo says, did you see anything? And I say, I, I didn't see anything, but I didn't stop to look either. Um, and so look at the bottom of 207. It says, over the lip of the little dell on the side away from the hill, they felt rather than saw a shadow rise, one shadow or more than one. They strained their eyes and the shadows seemed to grow. So stop for just a second. Um, I think this might be an obvious question, but why this emphasis on shadow in talking about the ring wraiths? I like the notion that the shadow is the absence of light, or that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yep, absolutely. Lack, an utter lack. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so the shadow is an absence of light just in the same way that evil is an absence of, of being. Um, so evil doesn't have a substance, it has an absence. Uh, Tolkien is sometimes uh, accused of giving evil an actual substance. And with the ring, one could argue that perhaps he does in regards to the actual physical object of the ring, which is, an, which is evil. Um, but more often than not, he will take away the being of something that is evil and, and describe it in these terms. So the shadow that rises that's there. So we see the shadow first, we feel the shadow first, and then we see the figures, three or four tall black figures we're standing there on the slope, looking down on them. But notice this, so black were they that they seemed like black holes in the deep shade behind them. So again, they're nothing. Evil is nothing. It's not something. It is nothing. Um, then the shapes slowly advanced. Um, okay, so look here at how the ring is going to, again, tempt Frodo. Um, Frodo was hardly less terrified than his companions. He was quaking as if he was bitter cold, but his terror was swallowed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring. The, the desire to do this laid hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the barrow nor the message of Gandalf, but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings, and he longed to, to yield not with the hope of escape or of doing anything, either good or bad. He simply felt that he must take the ring and put it on his finger. He could not speak. He felt Sam looking at him as if he knew that his master was in some great trouble, but he could not turn towards him. He shut his eyes and struggled for a while, but resistance became unbearable. 
And at last, he slowly drew out the chain and slipped the ring on the forefinger of his left hand. So we have a description here of, uh, of the ring's power at this point. And let's think back on the other previous temptations that the, the ring has had on him. What have Frodo's failures been thus far regarding the ring? Can you recall it textually? What was it when he first encountered the ring rays? Um, when trouble comes, it seems like he always wants to put on the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Caleb, earlier in the Shire, uh, what helped him not put on the ring when the ring wraith was particularly close to him? Was it just his own willpower or was there something else that intervened? Was it his friends or? It was the elves. Yeah, it was the elves. The elves singing drives the ring wraith away. And then the, that moment of temptation passes. Uh, but even in the Shire, that temptation to use the ring when the ring wraith is close is uh, is almost unbearable, even in the Shire at this point, at that point. Um, it wasn't just Frodo just saying, I'm absolutely not going to do this, um, that allows him not to put on the ring even back in the Shire. Um, but here we see that power of the ring even greater now over Frodo, kind of expressing itself even more over Frodo. And he remembers everything that's happened. It's not that his rational part is not there, um, but the power of the ring is so great that it's almost like his own free will does not seem to be, doesn't seem to be uh, present. Um, This is a problem. Um, We're only on page 208 and he's not even, he's not even that far away from the Shire. He's not even close to Mordor. And what do we see already happening? but almost the complete inability for Frodo by his own will and willpower uh, to resist, to resist the ring. In fact, you could argue he has no willpower to resist the ring. He may have a desire to, but he doesn't seem to have a a power to do so. Um, What is this insane about uh, human free will against a power that is this much greater than than the human person. Where where is the extent of, of human freedom that's present here? And this is a question we'll come back to repeatedly in this story because it's a question that comes returns in, in in the course of the of the novel. I have a thought. I, I don't think that Frodo at this point fully realizes the evil. I think he has a sense that something bad, but he he's so naive. And it seems like all the hobbits are so naive at this point. And I don't think that he disobeys Gandalf out of malice or puts the ring on out of malice. It's almost like a venial sin. (laughs) He he just doesn't realize it. Yeah. And I like what you said too, that he doesn't, he doesn't fully know about the ring's power. He's heard about it. Um, and he trusts Gandalf that it, it's a, it is a, an evil object that he should not use. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Through direct experience, uh, he he never has actually experienced the the full power of the ring yet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there is an innocence that's there that is, of course, about to be absolutely shattered by mm-hmm. what um, what occurs. Um, okay. Good. What else then is the suggestion about the extent of human freedom? Anna suggested that there is there is a lack of culpability that's here, 
because through, the, through innocence or ignorance that's there. I think it's absolutely true. I think there's some other elements that are present as well, though, regarding the extent of freedom. And to be honest, it's something that often bothers, I think, Americans particularly, because we grow up under this idea of the supremacy of, of ourselves, you know, the supremacy of our own ability to, to choose and to choose in a type of uh, vacuum for or against. Um, and Tolkien, in many ways, is radically countering an American understanding of, uh, of freedom. How so? I'm, I'm kind of stumping you all tonight. <laughs> there is questions. That's okay. It's good food for thought. Um, just for the sake of time, um, let me just give you this as something else to, uh, to think about. When we suggest that we are completely free to choose as we want, we really are disregarding a fundamental reality that uh, there are external forces that bind us in certain ways to be able to choose only in certain ways. Um, and so I'm really not free to, I don't know, go down to Farmington, knock on Jeff Bezos's door and say, I want the next ticket on that, uh, that ship up into space. Um, I don't have that freedom to really do that. I'm bound in that sense by the limitations of my pocketbook. Um, I don't have the freedom of wealth to do certain things. Uh, and so Tolkien is really pointing that within within life, within the world, we operate under so many limitations, but that limit, those limitations are itself part of, uh, part of providence, part of the way the, the, the God has made, has made the world. What is demanded of us is to act well within the confines of our own circumstances. And that's the way we're going to see Frodo act in just a moment, just what happens after this. In some sense, the ring has compelled him to put it on, but what is the ring still unable to do? And we see this in the very ending of this, uh, of this scene. What is the extent of Frodo, even with the ring on his finger? What does he still do? He calls out for help. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. At that moment, Frodo threw himself forward on the ground and he heard himself crying, Oh, Elbereth, Gelthonio. And at the same time, he struck at the feet of his enemy. A shrill cry rang out in the night. He felt a pain like a dart of poisoned ice pierce his left shoulder. Even as he swooned, uh, he caught a glimpse of Strider leaping out of the darkness with a flaming brand of wood in either hand. With a last effort, notice this is Frodo, with a last effort, Frodo dropping his sword, again, in this sense, weapons are useless, slipped the ring from his finger and closed his right hand tight upon it. Um, so in the very same scene, you have both the affirmation of the, of the uh, power of evil over someone's freedom and the confirmation of, of the, 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 the power the person still has. Frodo may not be able to resist the power of the evil. He's, he's not. He puts that ring on. This is unbearable. The resistance became unbearable. And he actively puts that ring on. Um, but then he reasserts himself and his will and what he truly intends um, through, as it says, the, the last effort of, of Frodo. And Jackson, in a huge mistake, is constantly stripping Frodo of his own uh, of his own willpower 
in those scenes where it's really important that Frodo ought to show his own willpower. Frodo moves straight from being stabbed to this completely incapacitated person practically on death's door. And he doesn't say anything besides from there until when he's healed in, uh, in Rivendell. And he's gone. His person is gone. And so what you see in Jackson was that choosing to put on the ring, getting stabbed, and then nothing. You know, it's just like this passive person for, uh, for the remainder of that scene until he's in Rivendell and he's healed by other people. I mean, Frodo as a person is gone. But that's not Tolkien's Frodo. In Tolkien's flight to the Ford, we see Frodo contemplating what he did. And he keeps saying he regrets it. He, he, he kicks himself. He said, why did I do that? To, to 11, it says, he says uh, he bitterly regretted his foolishness and reproached himself for weakness of will. I'm not sure if it is weakness of will, but he sees it as weakness of will. He says, for he now perceived that in putting on the ring, he obeyed not his own desire, but the commanding wish of his enemies. Um, some of the language that Tolkien uses in this chapter it was very much as, as you would have someone who regrets a, a sin that they have committed uh, and they're regretting it and they, they have great remorse for what they've done. And they now suddenly see you know, the tricks of the enemy for what they were and they were deceived by it. But Frodo's will is so present within this, within this chapter. And what we see over and over again is his staying internally that he regrets it. He regrets what he did. Um, but most important is that that scene where he actually encounters the full ring race at the end of when he's across the, the river. Um, and again, I don't care that it's Arwen and not uh, Glorfindel, but I do care that they take out of Frodo's mouth the incredibly important statement he says, the bottom of uh, 226, uh, where he says, go back. He says, go back. All these images of the great effort Frodo sat upright and brandished his sword. Go back, he cried. Go back to the land of Mordor and follow me no more. Uh, and they laugh at him, uh, but he still says, go back, everything he can. And it says, by Elbereth and Luthien the Fair, said Frodo, with a last effort, lifting up his sword, you shall have neither the ring nor me. So in a way, he is powerless against their power, against the ring race power. And yet, to the very extent of, that he is able to, he says no to them. And he says, absolutely not. You're not going to have any of this. And so you really see that sense of, uh, of strength and of courage and of uh, resistance that Frodo's own free will actually does. But then, of course, it's the external power that, that is greater than Frodo and comes in upon him. And he is, of course, only saved through the external unexpected uh, insertion of the providential, which in this case is the river that comes down, but it's sent by Elrond and, uh, and Gandalf. So again, uh, two drastically different ways of presenting this character, but it's so essential because of the pro progression that happens in this whole story towards, of course, the climax at Mount Doom, which sadly uh, Jackson for all the good things of his movie, he, he fails to get that really essential key point, which ultimately is a spiritual point regarding our own freedom uh, before uh, ex external powers. So, but it's 9.30 my time, uh, 10.30 East Coast time. Um, it's time for East Coasters to go to bed and 
West Coasters to go surfing in the Pacific or something fun like that. <laughs> but thank you all so much. And I look forward to, um, to continuing next, next week. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.